path in those days. But all the rules should be breached. The sins of the place like the radiant government. So all of them should be breached. Everything in the known city. Joseph also went into Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, yeah, the city of David. Because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the day were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and the earth, peace, good will to men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look again at this familiar passage, Father, we pray that keep it afresh in our minds this morning as we go back and ponder the events that happened on that evening with the birth of our Lord and Savior. Father, may we focus our attention on the great sacrifice that was made for each one of us, so that we may know you, so that we may have peace with you, and the offering of eternal life. And Lord, I pray this morning that the words I speak be not unpliable, but be glorified unto you, further your kingdom. So as is fitting on Christmas morning, we are going to be looking at this familiar passage with the birth of Christ. We will next week start the study of First Corinthians. I think we've taken most of December off to look at John the Baptist, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, and Joseph, and this morning the culmination of the birth of Jesus. So start then with verse. 1 verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass in those days that a decree or a law went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was not his real name. Note this document that's so past. His real name was Gaius Octavius. If you have a history book, you will know that he is or was Julius Caesar's great nephew. And Julius really took a liking to this great nephew, and in fact, he adopted him as his own son. And so, when Julius Caesar was assassinated in 24 BC, he named him the heir to the throne, right at the young age of 19. So, we have Gaius Octavius or Caesar Augustus. He was best known as Octavian. He, if you remember, and remember your history, he Mark Antony and Lepidus, after the assassination of Julius Caesar, they split up the kingdom in three different ways. And they all ruled their own portion of the kingdom. But they didn't get along. Not <coughs> the case, we moved along that era in time. Tension grew, but 
King Octavian, and he drove Lepidus out of the region and into exile. And then we all know the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, right? So Octavian then set his sights on Mark Antony, and Mark Antony was and he committed suicide after that. So then he becomes Caesar of Augustus. Caesar was not a name, he was a form of title. It carried with it godly attributes. So he saw himself as God. We all know that was not gay, but nonetheless, that's the way many of the leaders in Rome saw themselves at the time. So they realized it took a lot of money to rule this great vast kingdom. And what is the easiest way to get the money to rule this great vast kingdom? Take it from everybody else. Take it from everybody else. So that was the plan, and that was what Caesar Augustus was doing at this time. He was going to take this money in the form of a tax, but in order to tax people, he had to know how many people were. We take a census. A lot of different reasons, but nonetheless, they took a census here to see who they could tax and how much money they could come up with as a result of that tax. But to be registered, you had to return to the city of which you were born, the city of your birth. And remember, this was all done so prophecy could be fulfilled. That, that's probably one of the most amazing things to me in this story is how God played all of this out. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And here's the prophecy we have from Micah. But as for you, Bethlehem and Patmos, too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you, one will go forth from, for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So we have the prophet, the prophet Micah making this prophecy that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Four years prior to this event. years silent. So from, from Micah all the way to the New Testament, God was quiet. He was silent. We have no intertestamental writings during that time from God. And yet we look at God's providential hand in all of this. And I stand back and am quite frankly amazed at that. God had to find a way to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem at the precisely correct time. Let me rephrase that because that's not correct. God didn't have to find a way to do anything. When I say that, it seems as if God is reacting to the current situation. God never reacts. God is always acting in a way that is parallel with His will. So, before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, God had planned it out that Caesar Augustus would be in power would want to be taxing his people, would call the census to be held, and as part of that census, by the way, everybody's going to return to the city which they were born. 
So God didn't just see this and say, well, I've got to intervene here and change things because Jesus is not going to be born in Bethlehem if I don't know. It all worked perfectly according to his will. Now, how he works everything in his I got no idea. I cannot explain that. I'm quite certain Caesar Augustus had no idea that God was working in and through him through the taxation and the census to accomplish the prophecy that was set forth in my no clue. I'm quite certain Caesar Augustus thought he was having the census or conducting the census out of his own free will. He was doing it because he wanted to, because he wanted to tax people and get money to run the kingdom. But you see how beautifully God's will and men, godly and ungodly alike, work together and flow perfectly in harmony to accomplish God's perfect purpose. And we see that here. We see it in much the same way as we follow when we went through the book of Acts. Remember when the church first started? Then they wouldn't leave. They wouldn't leave Jerusalem. They all kind of hung out around Jerusalem. Well, it was God's plan that the gospel be spread to all areas of the earth, or the known earth at that time. So how did that work out? It worked in and through the hearts of evil men that were trying to kill the preachers and pastors in Jerusalem at that time. They dispersed. They dispersed. Rather than get killed, they dispersed, but that was God's way of moving them out to other cities, to other areas. It was God working in and through the hands of people that didn't even know him, that basically denied that he even existed. Find God's providence amazing and profound in so many different ways. So Joseph then went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And as I've said in prior weeks, it's very likely that Mary was as well, but nonetheless, we focused on. Joseph, because that was census. Mary didn't have to go with him, but there was an issue, right? Mary was really pregnant. She was really close to giving birth. So he wasn't going to leave her there all alone. I mean, the reality probably was Mary didn't have any friends at that time, right? We kind of know all the shame that. Society in general probably lashed out in her. There were whispers all over. No one believed their story, except for Elizabeth. No one believed what she was trying to say. Everybody shunned her. She didn't have any help. It was basically Joseph and Mary. So he didn't want to leave her there by herself. And he took her with him. So they went there to be registered. And Mary was his betrothed wife. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. That for all practical purposes, they were married. In order to stop this betrothal process, 
that you had to take the certificate of divorce. So legally, they were bound together. But both Matthew as well as Luke tells us that that marriage was not consummated, and that period of time passed, and then they were formally brought together, and the marriage was consummated thereafter. So for all practical purposes, everything was the same except for consummation. We know that Joseph kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to Jesus. And the writers of Gospel wanted to make sure that we understood their union and what it was and what it was not. So it was that while they were there, the day completed for her to be delivered. Wow. What an accident, right? They traveled this 90 miles, roughly between Nazareth and Bethlehem. Most of it on foot, they did have the help of a donkey, but it probably took around five days, roughly, maybe a little longer. Traveling was like was today. We can take 90 miles in an hour and a half to two hours. It's no big deal. <clears throat> drive 90 miles to the hospital after the wife goes into delivery, right? Wasn't that way back then? It was a very difficult time for travel. And so I'm sure that they got there and they were extremely weary, extremely tired. They looked for a place to stay and. Can you imagine? And I've asked this before to those of you that are mothers. It's your first baby. We all know that that's a little different scenario than the second, third, fourth, as he goes on down the line. The first baby, everything's got to be perfect, right? You take all the vitamins, you make every checkup, you've got everything just perfect, the crib's set up, the roof's set up, everything's fine, you don't want anybody coming around the baby that may bring germs. You're just extremely protective of that baby. I mean, gets down the road, you don't care, dog, you lick his face, whatever, you don't care. But this was Mary's first child. So she had nothing to deal with. But more than that, this is the Son of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the excitement <laughs> going through her as she thinks back to her conversation? Gabriel, when he tells her what's going to happen and that she's going to give birth and everything that's going on, and I'm like, sir, she's terrified. And everything in the group. And so they go to try to find a, a hotel room. So then what do they do? up in a place where all the animals were, or all the excrement from the animals were. There was nothing perfect about this thing. Nothing. The fear that I'm sure that she endured only complicated the matter. She was about to give birth to the creator of the universe. Creator, sustainer of all things. And he was going to be placed not in a crib, not in a house. But a 
eating trough. A nasty, dirty, grimy eating trough. The clam line, that major scene we've done so far out here, you used to have one set up there. Nice and strong, kind of comfy. Not It was a feeding trough. Looked like nothing what we envisioned today. It held food and water for the animals. I'm certain that it was extremely unsanitary. The last place in the world you would want to put your child. Plus, the bed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in his father's mm -hmm. and laid him in that manger because there was no plate of him, no room for him in the end. Now we have a shift in the scene. So we have a shift in the scene from Joseph to Mary in this barn putting Jesus in the manger and he goes out of the country to the shepherds living out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night and behold an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid so we have a shepherd now watching their flock in the countryside, and it all shifts to them. So my question is because why is this included in an area? And you, you see this where they're trying to find a place to stay, and where they end up having or giving birth to Jesus, and you see it now with the shepherd. Why do we hear about shepherds now? Don't get me wrong, I think there's some evidence of a parallel here behind the shepherds observing it and going to observe the greatest shepherd to ever live. But I, I don't think that's by accident. The Bible doesn't tell us why he did. But I think it's demonstrating the study God chooses a simple thing If you think about the situation in the meantime, the opportunity to give birth to the king of kings, the little war, he wants to do so with the best country in mankind, he's going to be fanfare every leader in the world would have the opportunity to come and pay homage to that That's not my economy. I don't do things the way that men do things. I seek out the humble, the pure in heart, the salt of the earth. And that's what he was doing here. I believe that's why we see the shepherds. They had no hidden agenda. They weren't wanting to make points with anybody by coming and giving a gift or seeing the newborn baby. They weren't trying to protect their job or their status in society. Surely kings and noblemen and leaders would be doing so, but not the shepherds. They represented the salt of the earth. 
They were people who worked hard, spoke the truth, and didn't engage pettiness. Now, can you imagine what the shepherds witnessed in the middle of the night? It's a different story, right? No doubt, a great deal of fear probably it overcame them. The glory of the Lord shone all around them. We talked about that. The second Mary when the angel appeared to them. God, the angel coming from the glory of God and reflecting his glory we are mortal men. So we see the angel's words. Same do not be afraid. You see, you're witnessing the glory of God reflecting off of this angel, and they come to a lot of fear and encourage the shepherds not to be afraid. I bring you good tidings. I bring you good news. Pray for joy. Pray for joy. True joy. Joy that doesn't fade based on how you feel today or tomorrow. It's everlasting joy that comes from this baby that is being born in Bethlehem. I bring you good news. And in verse 11, the angel confirms that the Savior has born, been born for. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Savior of all mankind. Now he's going to tell them, this is how you will find him, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So we have what was likely Gabriel, the glory of God shining around Gabriel, huge light in the sky to the shepherds, telling them this, and then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude. I don't know how many of them to say A multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I don't know how much of the situation the angels understood. Grace was foreign to angels. We know that angels are fallen or they're not. We're a little different entity than the angels are. But they knew that God was doing something glorious, something magnificent. They could see the love of God for his people as they witnessed the birth of Jesus Christ. And they were praising him for it. Glory to God in the highest. Again on earth. Peace. Goodwill. What an exciting time this must have been. Probably a lot of fear as well. But exciting time for the shepherds. But also for the angels. They were glorifying God who was in heaven. We have verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will toward men. The ESV, I believe, translates it probably correctly. 
on earth, peace to those with whom he is pleased. Peace to those with whom he is pleased. Those that believe now have an opportunity to no longer be at war with God. No great chasm between man and God if you believe in the Son, that goal that gathered is closed, and now we have access to Him through that baby laying in the manger. Jesus created a peace between God and man. Born unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see Isaiah's prophecy of this beautiful event. We saw Michael write about it 400 years prior to, Isaiah was writing about it 700 years prior to. You see that he is referred to as the Prince of Peace, to extinguish that fire, that flame between man and God. See, that's the beauty of Christ. You can't have peace with God without the intermediary of the Son. He and He, and he alone gives us that. What makes Christianity so unique. And that's why those that don't believe in Jesus are so wrong. This is the peace of Christ. And not only does it bridge the gap between us and the Father, but it helps us with each other. It overflows. It's vertical and it's horizontal. It overflows between us as believers. Want to know peace and true peace, you must know the Son. Because without the Son, you will never find not only peace with God, but peace with yourself and with each other. So it was when the angels had gone away from them to heaven. And the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass, which is the Lord, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. So the angels departed. They went back to the presence of God. The shepherds were no doubt ecstatic and excited to go see what the angels had just told them. There is a new king, a king that brings peace, a king that offers Peace with the Father and eternal life. Peace between us and God. Peace among us. Glory to God in the highest. Story of the birth of Christ. As we close, I'm going to share a story that I first heard many years ago. Story of Paul Harvey. How many of you have ever called Paul but my fancy guy probably wasn't as popular then The story is called A Man and His Birds. 
The man I'm going to tell you about was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man. Generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men. But he just didn't believe in all that incarnation stuff. All that stuff that the church has proclaimed at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. The story of God coming to earth as a man. He told his wife, I'm truly sorry to distress you, but I'm not going with you to the church Christmas Eve service. He said he would feel like too much of a hypocrite, and he would rather just stay at home. But he would go for that. So he stayed and they went to the night of service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, the snow began to fall. And he went to the window to watch the flurries as they got heavier and heavier. Then he went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a buddy sound. Then enough. Then enough. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against him, living room window. But he went to the front door to investigate, and there he found a flock of birds huddled outside, miserably, in the snow. They'd been caught in a snowstorm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they had tried to fly through his large landscape window. That is what had been making sound all along. Well, he thought to himself, he couldn't let the poor creatures just lie there and freeze them. So he remembered the barn where his children stabled their home. That would provide them with warm shelter. All he would have to do would be to direct the birds into that shelter. Quickly, he put on a coat of galoshes and trampled through the deepening snow, went to the barn, opened the doors wide and turned on the lights so the birds would know the way in. Birds didn't come in. So he figured the food would entice them. He hurried back to the house and fetched some breadcrumbs. He sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail of breadcrumbs to the yellow, lighted, wide open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored breadcrumbs. The birds continued to flap around helplessly in the snow, and he tried catching them, but he could not. He tried shooting them into the barn and walking around and waving his arms, and instead they scattered in every direction. Every direction, except the white barn. And that's when he realized they were afraid. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me. That I'm not going to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow him. They would not be led or shoot because they feared him. He thought to himself, if only I could be hurt and mingle with them. 
and speak their language. That I could tell them not to be afraid. That I could show them the way to the safe warmth. The warmth of the barn. But I would have to be one of them. So they could see. So they could hear. So they could understand. At that moment, the church bells rang. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. He stood there listening to the bells, the death taken out, listening to the bells, healing the glad tidings of Christmas, and he sank to his knees in the snow. Let's all stand and join together and sing the song that the bells played on that Christmas. 